You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Job chapter 32. We're going to continue on in our series. Um, If you don't know where the book of Job is, you can find the book of Psalms. Just turn right to the middle of your Bible and go right behind that. It's right there. Job chapter 32. Job 32, and I'll, I'll read one verses 1 through 5, and then we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. It's Job 32, 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Let's pray. God, I'm just reminded, as I've been, we've been preaching through Job, I've been preaching through Job, that Lord, in those, when your people suffer, it is really hard to sit down with them and just, as you say, Lord Jesus, to weep with those who weep. It's, Lord, I would argue today what we're going to see is even harder than just learning to weep with them to correct a sufferer in their, in their suffering and sin, Lord, it's even harder. It's, we need even an extra measure of wisdom and grace from your Spirit as we consider doing this. So God, help us now to seek you, to seek your face, and that you'd show us, Lord, what it means to correct a sufferer in their sin. Give us the grace, God, to do that. Help us, Lord, to attend to your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask as we do so and as we see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, even in this text, that we would believe, so believe on him and be saved. Do that in us, we pray. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So several years ago, I don't know, um, it would have been about the time I was maybe... I don't know when it was. I just remember it happening. But what, the Westboro Baptist Church, I say that, and some of you will be like, oh, yes, of course. We remember that. Others will be like, mm, I don't know what that is. Well, there were a group, uh, a, ch- a church group, that uh, basically went around and protested different things. Uh, they prost- which I have, I have no clue why. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not getting into all that today. Uh, but they, prost- they protested things like the tornado in 2011, I think, that went through Joplin, Missouri. They protested the Boston Marathon bombing. I want you to picture that, like the, the people are suffering, they're grieving, and you have people outside who are claiming to be Christians in the name of Christ saying, you're all going to hell, like just, just very ridiculous things, or, or the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, they protested that. And oftentimes when, when I'm talking to people, even when they find out I'm a Baptist, the first thing they'll be like is, are you like the Westboro Baptist kind? That's what the first thing they'll ask, and I'll be like, no, no that's not, that's not, that's not what it means to be Baptist. Uh, but when people, when people hear this group, typically we get extremely upset 
And, and in some ways, I would argue it's, it's actually really good to be upset at them. But I want to be very clear. E- even secular pagans get mad at them. What matters here is why you get mad at them. Why do, why do you get upset at them? Maybe you get upset at them because the things they protest, they should be grieving. Maybe you get upset at them because they're a part of a political group you don't agree with. Or maybe you get upset at them because of the name of Christ being drugged through the mud as they protest these people who should be grieving. And I think it would be safe to say that most of us get angry at the Westboro Baptist Church. And I think I would argue for good reason. Mainly because they misrepresent God. They misrepresent him in their actions. They misrepresent him in their words. They misrepresent him in every way. And this should create in us a righteous anger. Now, righteous anger, we're going to look at it a little bit today, because uh, the, the book the, where we're at in Job is really kind of turning a corner today. So we've watched for, from chapter 7 of, book, chapter, of Job to chapter 31, we've heard Job argue back and forth with some friends. But now this guy named Elihu comes on the scene. Now, Elihu, he literally means, and if you're taking notes, you should have notes there. If you need notes, they're in the back. Um, But if you're taking notes, we're going to look at Elihu today. And his name literally means, he is my God. And I want to answer a question in this first section of just simply, is he a friend or is he a foe? Because we've seen a lot of jerks thus far in Job's life. And we need to ask the question on the front end, is this guy worth listening to? Or should we be like, I don't know. And I'm going to argue that he's a friend, which seems kind of strange because the way he approaches Job initially. But I want, to, I want to argue that he's a friend. And there's much ink spilled over Job, or Elihu because people, many people will say, well, he was, he's actually a jerk. He's, he's, he's just like the other friends. But I want to say, no, he's actually a friend of Job, a true friend. Listen to what it says in verse 2 of Elihu. Then Elihu, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I'm sorry, the, the back half of verse 2. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And your first thought probably should be, it should be, oh my goodness, here we go again. Here's another, here's another friend. We've just heard from three different friends. Here comes a fourth friend. Oh, goodness. But, and I'm, I'm going to argue that he's not a foe. He's a friend. So the first question, is he problematic or is he prophetic? Is he problematic or is he prophetic? Is Elihu giving us wisdom from God or just more folly? Is he just adding to the fodder that's already been there? Is he speaking from authoritative wisdom from God or should we just expect more ridiculousness? And I want, I want to use an example. I've used it before. But if you think about a human being being a bottle of water, I've mentioned this before, but if you, if you uncap the lid, if I were to dump this on the stage, I won't dump it on the stage. I, I've made the argument that, that what comes out of you, if I, if I turned it over and dumped it down, I would say, why is the water on the ground? Well, I would argue that what comes out of you was, was what was within you, okay? Now, we've seen in Job thus far that he is pure. God has said he, he, he's not suffering because of sin. We see that. So it's clear water. But what if I were to take maybe the bottom little, put, little bit and put some segment, like a sediment of like dirt or something? I was going to do this, but I, then I was like, it's not going to work. My luck, I'll get like clay or something and it won't do what I want it to do. But if I shook this up and I said, and you started to see like dirt or the sediment that was at the bottom start to like go everywhere, 
I want you to see that I, th- I would argue that's what's actually happened to Job. His, his suffering, he's pure, he's righteous. He did not suffer to, to get, his suffering is not a result of sin. But what I want to argue is that his, his suffering has tempted him toward sin. And this is what oftentimes happens with sufferers. This is one piece that I would argue never gets talked about. My wife had a, a long stretch of suffering. And we, we, heard, we heard lots of people comfort us, some, sometimes in really ridiculous, stupid ways. But they never, they always felt like they never wanted to correct her in her suffering. And I always wanted, I, I look back at this and I, I really feel for Elihu. Because I've, for long seasons of my life, I've been Elihu. I've sat and I've listened to people tell sufferers something, and it really makes you angry when all you hear is, don't worry, God's going to heal you. Maybe he will, but what if he doesn't? Or what if you hear, actually, your sin's what's caused this? It should make you really angry. And maybe you're an Elihu here today. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're, maybe you're Job sitting here today. But a lot of times I find a lot of us are like Elihu. We, we get a choice to make in this way. We get a choice to, we're either going to address our suffering friends with truth, we're going to be pr- prophetic rather than problematic, or we, we choose not to. So Job has not sinned to receive, I want to be very clear, Job has not sinned to receive his suffering. But during his suffering, his suffering has caused the water shaken up a little bit, and we're starting to see, even, even throughout Job, we've, we've mentioned this, that Job is not perfect. He's still a sinner. And he doesn't just need, oh, Job, you're wrong. This is what happened to your suffering. And he doesn't need, oh, Job, let me just comfort you. Comfort, 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 comfort. He needs corrected at some point. And this is really hard. But even Elihu himself says in verse 8, just to show that he's prophetic, it says, but it is the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. So Elihu's saying, I would argue he's prophetic. Okay, let's move on to the next one. So he's, he's also, he's prophetic. Is he wise or is he foolish? Well, some would see, okay, well, he said, it says over and over again that he's younger. So they would take that to mean, well, he's foolish then. And I would actually argue that I don't think that's correct. I think he's wise. And now, if you notice, look at what he says in verse, um, verse 1. It says, so it says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, remember, these guys have been talking for 30-something chapters. We're really tired of them talking. Okay, but he, was gonna, he wasn't going to say anything. He was a youth. He was probably a lot younger than them. And I want you to notice, again, like we've seen in the book of Job, Job really goes against the grain of how the world works. If you think about Proverbs being with the grain, Job's is, Job is like a splinter to how the world really works. And all over the Bible we see in other places that wisdom, Job 12, 12 even says it, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in the length of days. So, over and over again in Scripture, we see, or Proverbs sixteen thirty one, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And being older is typically associated with being wiser. And, and being younger is typically associated with folly. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. just to give you some examples. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. But what we're going to see with Elihu is we have a really wise young man. We have a really wise young man, which is very rare in Scripture, very, very rare. And I think it actually just shows the um, uniqueness or the um, kind of the upside-down nature of Job. We see a young man, so he's wise, he's not foolish. But if you can imagine, listen to what he says in verse 4. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. 
you hear even in that, he's so respectful. I don't know if you've ever listened to a fool speak for very long. This guy listened to a fool speak for days, <laughs> and he sat there quietly, didn't say a word. He respectfully sat and listened to his elders. But this shows that Ali, who's not simply some foolish youngling, he's wise, and he's wise beyond his years. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, he, not a theologian or anything, he's an author, but he says this, I think it's comical. He says, you're, only, you're young only once, but you can be immature indefinitely. So it's possible to be that, but I'm arguing from Elihu that no, he's wise. Okay, here's my other question. Is he right or is he wrong? So we've seen is he prophetic, he's prophetic, he's wise, but we're also going to see that he's right. Now I would argue the best evidence comes for this at the end of the book. At the end of the book of Job, God comes and he corrects the other three friends. This is very convincing to me. He comes and he says, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you all need to repent. You know what he, who he doesn't mention? He doesn't mention Elihu. And some would take that and say, well, God just has rid him off. And I would say, no, no, no. I think God is saying he's correct. So he's beginning to speak on behalf of God. We're even starting to see that. So when we see the title for today is called, When God Shows Up, it's speaking truth to sufferers. And I want you to see today, if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to get from today. Then since sufferers need to hear God's perspective we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. We must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. But let me ask you a question before I, we get into that. What makes you passionate? What, what do you get upset about? Well, like go, going back to that Westboro Baptist thing, does that make you upset? What happens, what has to happen in your life in order for you to get angry? For some of us, it could be as simple as a football team losing, which for a good reason, sometimes. For others, it may be you, need to, you hear people speak ill of you. I would say that's true of all of us in some capacity. When we hear others speak ill of us, we immediately get upset. For some still, we're motivated by injustices all around us. And what I want you to see from Elihu is that he's motivated, he's angry, he gets really angry when he starts to see God's name be drugged through the mud. Look down in verse 2 with me, and we'll, we'll jump into the text now. So then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. So I want you to see in this first section the righteous anger that he had. He's defending God's cause. And anger at its core, I want to be very clear about something. Anger at its core comes back to what you value. If you get angry at something, this is, can be for anything, it really reveals what you love what you love, what you value, what you care for. And this phrase, he burned with anger, is used four times in this little section. So Elihu's really angry, but he's angry at something that he values deeply. So he's angry first at Job. So he's angry first at Job, and he's saying that he's justified in his own eyes. And I want to make the assertion on the front end that I think both Job is correct and Elihu is correct. Job has been claiming he was righteous and he did, his suffering wasn't a result of sin. And that's correct. I want to be very clear. Job did not sin to get his suffering. But I also want to affirm that Elihu is right to be angry for God's glory. Because in his suffering, we've heard Job over and over again say things that were like, man, this, this doesn't sound right. 
Like, this sounds wrong. He's, he's, he's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning God's justice. And Elihu's had enough of it. He's saying, no, no, no. Now, I want to be very clear. He sat for a very long time, 30-something chapters. He sat and listened and cared for Job. But there comes a point, and I don't know where that point is, which is why we need wisdom, and we're going to see that. But you have to speak truth to a sufferer. You cannot simply just ooze and goose with them. You cannot just give them that. Elihu, as one quote said, I thought this was really well, well done, Elihu is right to be indignant or angry, and yet Job is right to claim his righteousness. They're both correct. In verse 2, it, he goes on, and he says, Elihu is right, or, uh, he burned with anger, verse 2, at Job, because he justified himself rather than God. Now, Elihu is initially mad at Job because he's, he's been accused of much. And rather than saying, hey, you know what? God's just. I don't understand it all. He's saying, I'm, I'm righteous. And he's mad. Elihu's upset because he continually defends himself rather than God. But so he's angry at Job. He's also angry. Look at verse, um, look at verse 3. He says, um, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So he, this is the second category. He's angry at Job's friends. He's angry at the friends. And you know why he's angry at them? Because they're silent and they're stupid. They're silent and they're stupid. He's angry at these friends because they've said much. They've, they've really blown a lot of wind. There's not been a lot of substance come out. They've said a lot of really big things, and they're wrong. And the bigger issue here for, for, Job, for Job, or for Elihu, is not that they weren't able to answer Job, but they were focusing on the wrong area in Job's life. They were focusing on, hey, why is this suffering even here? You, this, this suffering is here, Job, because you sinned. And Elihu's saying, that's not right. But in your suffering, you have sinned. That's what Elihu's saying. And he's so upset, he's so mad at these friends for neglecting their suffering friend and not correcting his sinful responses. Now jump down to verse 5 with me, and we're going to start looking at Elihu's answer. He says, and Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men. He burned with anger. Now I want to be very clear about something. I want to kind of circle up here for a second. There's a kind of anger that is sinful, Ephesians 4, just to give you an example, verse 4.31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But we also need to acknowledge, so we see here, anger can be sinful. Anger can be something that reveals our hearts that needs repented of. But going back to verse 26 of Ephesians 4, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there's a way that me and you can be angry and not sin. And I think what it boils down to very simply is we need to be angry at the right things. To see if anger is righteous, we must ask ourselves the simple question, what is the object of our anger? What am I angry at? What is motivating our anger and our frustration? And I can say for me, if I count it all up all the times in a given week that I get angry, the number of times that I'm angry at something that is not righteous is a lot more. It, it vast more, vastly exceeds the amount of times I get angry about what is righteous. Righteous. 
Because when I get mad at something that's righteous, that righteous anger, you know what I do? I do something. I act. I don't, I don't, I don't just sit and stew. When I'm mad about something that is truly worth being mad about, I do something about it. And I think the problem is that we are too often, often angered for our own honor and for our own glory. We become so concerned about our own hurt that we actually miss things that really we should be angry about. I would argue, brothers and sisters, we need to be angry for God's name. When we hear people, so that means when we're sitting and talking to a coworker, and they say to us, you go to church, and they kind of chuckle at us or whatever, but then they immediately take the Lord's name in vain. Both things happen at the same time. We get mad at, they chuckled at me. Not, they just blasphemed God's name. Do you see? Do you see how the, the, the difference is? What comes to the forefront in Elihu's anger at Job and at the friends concerns God's justice. And I saw this happen so many times with my wife when, during her sickness. There would be moments that she was responding in sin to, to a suffering situation, and rather than being corrected, people would just ooze and goose. They'd be like, man, I'm really sorry this is happening for you. But they would never, on her behalf, correct her. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Christopher Ashey goes on to say at one point, he says, if I feel that God has not treated me right in my health, my upbringing, my abilities, my relationships, my work, or in a failed relationship, a bereavement, a sickness, a psychiatric disorder, then my faith will be harmed. My obedience will become reluctant, and my hope will be destroyed, and my joy will be poisoned. So don't miss what he says here. He's saying, if I feel in anything in my life that I've been treated wrongly by God, it's going to poison my life. And I would argue for the sufferer, oftentimes they feel as though God's treated them wrongly. And this can go on for years and years and years. And rather than saying, brother, sister, I love you, but that's wrong. They just say, oh, but I know suffering's really hard. And Elihu, I want you to see, is Elihu's a true friend to him. Think about, think about Jesus, even, in an instance of his righteous anger. John 2, this is just an example. It's a, it's a moment where he, we see him drive the people in the temple out of the temple. And I want you to think about what he could do. If he was, if he was in our culture, what he would do is be like, guys, I know we're all suffering here, but like these people are suffering or I don't even know. I'm not even sure what he would do in this moment, but his anger drove him to do this. Listen to what he, he saw the injustice happening. And he says in verse 15, it says in verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house shall consume me. And really what, what we see happening here is the Lord Jesus seeing an injustice. Basically, the Jews were not allowing the Gentiles to even come in. And rather than just saying, oh, Gentiles, I know you all are suffering. I know you're all not allowed in the temple. He gets mad about it. And what does he do? He drives them out of the temple. Or upon seeing his friend Lazarus in the tomb, he becomes angry at sin and does something about it. So here's our application. When we see a suffering person struggling with injustice, we cannot simply bring comfort. We've seen over and over again in the book of Job, we need to bring comfort. 
but we must at some point bring them truth. We must be zealous in our pursuit of bringing them the truth. So since sinners and sufferers need to hear God's perspective, we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. But if you're taking notes there, that, that, that point of in order to speak, we must value what God values. We cannot value what we want to value. We have to value what God values more than even what this other person values. Okay, so we, we, let's keep going. So that third point there, we're going to look at wisdom's source. So Elihu's saying he's coming to Job, he's bringing him wisdom. We're going to look at wisdom's source. And it's simply the breath of the Almighty. Now we need to remember that Job's friends tried to convince Job that human religion, and we saw this over and over again in Job, that they were bringing him earthly wisdom. Wisdom that was harsh and hard and calloused. Wisdom that spoke from a traditional worldview. And again, we've talked about this before, but I want you to see the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. So the wisdom from below. It's the wisdom of the world. Now, now Eliphaz, he talks, or Elihu, he talks about it here in verse 6. He says, he, he says, this is Elihu, he says, I am young in years, and you, that's referring to the friends, you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. He's basically saying, you all are so old and wise, I just want you to speak first. But after they've opened their mouth, he's saying, my goodness, please just shut your mouth and I will talk. Let me share my opinion. Listen to what he goes on in verse 8 and 9. He says, But it is the Spirit, it, but it is the spirit of, in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, he says in verse 9, nor the aged who understand what is right. I want you to catch that. It is not because we're old, or a person's old, that they're wise. It's actually because the breath of the Almighty has given him wisdom. Now, there's a, there's a very clear application here I want us to see uh, about, and it really has to do with wisdom all around us. The doctrine of general revelation, and I think sometimes this, this can be very misconstrued. I'll oftentimes hear students come up to me and they'll say, I'm really struggling because in my church growing up, we always talked about the depravity of man. My pastor always talked about how, how wicked and depraved people are, but I've met people, and they're not wicked. <laughs> they're not as depraved as what I thought they were. My pastor told me how terrible they are. They're actually pretty nice people. And not only that, they're also pretty wise people. And I want you to notice something. Notice what he says in verse 8 and 9. He said, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand it's not, the, it's not the old who are wise, verse 9, nor the aged who understand what is right. And he's basically saying here, it's not even the person who's just worldly that has any wisdom. It's not that they're old. It's not that they're wise in themselves. It's actually from God that they're wise. And this is true even, for, this is why general revelation is very important for us. Because it means even unbelievers, if there's any sense of wisdom in them, it's from God. Now, they may refuse to recognize it. They probably maybe don't even acknowledge God at all. That doesn't matter. Their wisdom still comes from, as, as Elihu says, the breath of the Almighty. Their wisdom, even in an unbeliever, is from God. They may hate Him. It doesn't matter. The wisdom is from God. 
Now, I want you to see in verse, uh, so that's wisdom from below. I want you to also see wisdom from above. So wisdom from above. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 10. He says, therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. And the reason he's declaring his opinion is because God is the one who's, show, and we're going to see that, God is the one who's gave him his opinion in that way. So it's wisdom from above. It's wisdom from God. And he says to the friends, listen to what he goes on. He says, uh, verse 17, jump down there. He says, I will also answer my share. I will also declare my opinion. I love what um, Stephen Lawson said about this. He said, prudent insight that leads to successful living comes from God and not from length of years. I want you to hear that one more time. Prudent insight that leads to successful living comes from God and not from length of years. It does not come from the world. All wisdom comes from God. And this is very important for us as we consider speaking truth to sufferers who need to hear God's perspective. Because in order to speak, we need God's wisdom. So since sufferers need to hear God's perspective, we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. But in order to speak, we need God's wisdom. So where do I see that? Well, in James chapter 3, we've talked about this wisdom a little bit before, but I want you to see it again as we consider talking to sufferers. Look in, in, you can turn real quick with me to James chapter 3. Just turn there real quick. We'll, we'll be there for a few minutes. James 3, it's on the screen if you want it there too. Now he's talking about wisdom that comes from below and wisdom that comes from above. And he says in verse 15, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. So he's talking about the comparison earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom. He says, the earthly wisdom is unspiritual, it's demonic, and then he goes on and he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So if you want to get like a summarization for what earthly wisdom looks like, it's where jealousy, it's where selfish ambition and disorder and every vile practice exists. But then he says in verse 17, notice what he says. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, and and then peaceable, and then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And I want to just circle up and pause here for a second. The wisdom that James is talking about here is the Lord Jesus himself. It it is that wisdom that has come from, from above to us is the wisdom that's imparted by God's Holy Spirit. I want to be very clear about this, that the Holy Spirit in our lives, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you believed on Christ, then that He is wisdom from God, as Paul says in another place about the Lord Jesus. He is wisdom from God. So the wisdom is first from above, and it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial. It doesn't look and see, it's not partial in that way. It's very sincere. And I want you to notice verse 18, what the, what the harvest of it is. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom we need, brothers and sisters, if we're going to speak to sufferers, 
If we're going to speak to people who, who have suffered deeply like Job, we desperately need wisdom. And this is something I can honestly say you all don't have. I don't have. No one here has it. It makes us really, really needy. It makes us really, really needy because God's asking us to do something that we don't have in ourselves. So he's saying, go speak the truth to this sufferer. And if you've ever had to do that, you know, you just are like, I don't know what to say to them. What can I say to them? And I just want to say, you need God's wisdom. You need it. You don't, you don't need it, just a little bit of it. You need an unmeasured amount of wisdom, and it doesn't come from you, which should be really good news, which means that actually you can speak because it doesn't come from you. And then go back to what Elihu says, and we'll, we'll finish up here. So in order to speak, we need God's wisdom. I want you to notice what, what he says in this last section. He talks about impartiality. And before he does, though, just jump down to verse 18 of Job 32, so you can jump back to where you were. He says, For I am full of words. The Spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. What, what Elihu is experiencing here is the Spirit of God in him dwelling up. He's listened to all these ridiculous statements, and he's like, I can't keep quiet anymore, and I won't keep quiet anymore. So we need an impartial friend. This is what he says. This is what he promises to Job that he's going to give him. He says in verse 21, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So we need the impartial friend. We need a friend who comes to us and who speaks truth. Now that word impartial, in in a couple other places, just means this. It means to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. Let me say that one more time. It's to make unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. One, one definition says it's to look only upon a person's face. And what that means is it means that we look at them and we see, oh, we should treat them according to this because they look this way. Does that make sense? Like the Lord Jesus actually... At multiple points, even his enemies said to them, said to him, I think it's in the Gospel of uh, Luke, they say, he says, Lord, we know you don't look upon a man's face. And his whole point in saying that is, you really don't care what we think, <laughs> basically is what he's saying. You don't care what they think, you don't care what anyone else thinks. And that's what, jo- that's what Elihu is promising to Job here. He, I love what the NLT actually says in this, in verse 21 and 22. It says, I won't play favorites or try to flatter anyone. For if I, tried to, if I tried flattery, my creator would soon destroy me. So he's, this is what he's promising to Job. He's coming to him and he's saying, I'm going to be impartial with you. These guys, these guys haven't been impartial with you, but I'm going to be impartial parcel to you. Let me show you real quick how we do this. I would argue we do this in far more ways than what we realize. Let me give you an example first and then I'll show you. So James chapter 2 Christians, even in the first century, were struggling with this. Listen to James chapter 2. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What James is saying is he's saying that two people walk in, one's really poor, and you can tell by looking at their face. And one's really rich, and you can tell by looking at their face. And he's saying, we say to the one, well, you sit here in this distinguished place. And you poor man, ah, we got a spot downstairs. Just make sure no one sees you. And what he's saying is we can't do that. Now, you probably think, well, I've maybe never done that with someone with wealth and whatnot. But I want to make a statement that I think is true because I watched it happen with my wife during her sickness that, that people who suffer, whether it's suffering from physical illness, whether it's suffering from mental illness, I think we do that even there as well. No matter how it is, whatever illness or suffering may plague a person, we think, I should never correct them. And I just want to urge us, brothers and sisters, we can't have that attitude. Because what, it, what we do when we do that is we're saying, we're not like Elihu, who's coming to them as a true friend. We look at them, we see their suffering, and we think, we'll be partial to you. It, you're suffering a lot, that's okay, because you're suffering. And that's just not, brothers and sisters. Christians will often be asked by someone who's just lost, let me give you another example. We, you, you've, you've probably had this experience. You'll often be asked by someone in the workplace, hey, my uncle just died. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe in Jesus. He was, a, he was a hellion. He was a terrible man. And they'll look at you with all sincerity and ask, is he in heaven? Do you see? Do you see how we do this? We immediately, so that, there in that moment, this man is suffering the loss of his unbelieving uncle. And they ask, and I'm not saying we, we, we need to be pastorally sensitive. We need to be gracious to them. But beyond pastoral sensitivity, there needs to come a point we tell them the truth. We can't lie to them. It's not better to lie to them. To continue to offer false assurance or unfairly condemn is partiality. Or let me give you an example from somebody that's chronically ill. People who are chronically ill, if you didn't know this, I hope you know this, they begin to struggle with questions like, is God good? Is God fair? Is God just? How could I be experiencing this and God still be good? Brothers and sisters, we need, we desperately need to tell them the truth. We desperately need to be like Elihu here, and we need to bring them the impartial truth. So here's what we need going forward, the last two points. The first is just scales, speaking on God's behalf. If you didn't know, within our country, there's something in the justice system called Lady Liberty, and if you notice, if you ever look closely at it, I think Ryan Graver mentioned this a couple of months ago when he was here, but I think it was really helpful. In one hand, she holds scales, basically seeing which is which. But if you notice her, she's blindfolded. And the reason she's blindfolded is because she doesn't want to be able to look and see, oh, I like this one, so I'm going to prefer this one over another one. Brothers and sisters, what a sufferer needs in their suffering is impartiality. So, since sufferers need to hear God's perspective, we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. And in order to speak, 
We need impartiality. We need to be impartial toward them. And if we're not impartial toward them, here's what I want you to notice in verse 22. He says, For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. When we offer people partiality, when, we come to, when they come to us and they're suffering, they're grieving, they're hurting, and we come to them and we're like, ah, you're a sufferer, you're, you're believing some wrong things, but ah, it's okay, you've, had a lot. you've went through a lot. When we do that, we're hurting them. And we're hurting them, I want to be very clear, Look, notice what he says. For he says, I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon come and take me away. And Elihu just makes a very clear observation. If I flatter you, or if I come and I show partiality, I see you suffering, and I just say, well, you've been through a lot, this is really hard, he says, my maker will soon come and take me away. So I just want to warn, warn us, brothers and sisters, as we, as we think about speaking truth to sufferers, and, and from someone that, like I, like I said, my wife has struggled with chronic illness, and just to hear the answers and the, the, the things spoken to her during that time, we're just very unhelpful. So I just want to say from some of this, this walk through that, speak, we need to speak with, with, with what God values, we need to speak with God's wisdom, and we need to speak with God's impartiality. And I want you to notice, we're, we're going to come back to this next week, we're going to be in Elihu again next week and see how he responds, or how he continues to unpack for Job um, wh- where he sinned and where he's wrong in that way. But I just want us to consider that as we leave. Let me just ask you a question. Uh, if you think about maybe a sufferer you've walked along with in your own season of life, I just want you to consider how, what kind of truth are you speaking to them? Because I think all of us in some capacity or another, whether it's family, whether it's coworkers, whether it's friends, how, how are we walking with them? Because the thing they desperately need to hear is what God has to say. They don't need to hear what you have to say. They need to hear what God has to say. And to do that, we need to be gracious, we need to be prophetic, but we also need to be impartial. So I'm going to close us uh, in prayer, but I just want us to consider that as we leave here. Uh, who, who are you walking with, and, and how are you speaking truth to them? So let's pray. Father, thank you that, Lord, you have come. In Jesus Christ, you have come, and you've, you've brought us wisdom from God, as Paul says, that you've brought us righteousness that we can speak, Lord, prophetically. We can speak as ones who, who speak truth. And we can do so with pastoral and, and gracious sensitivity toward them because, Lord Jesus, you are the great sufferer. You are the one who suffered on, beh- on our behalf, and, Lord, we see the pattern that you have laid forward to us. So, God, give us the grace we need to do that to speak impartially, to speak lovingly with wisdom. And Lord, give us the grace we need to value what you value. Lord, that is really hard. I know what we're talking about today is is really challenging. So Lord, help us to speak in such a way. Help us to rely on you as we do so. Lord, not to rely on our own strength, but to rely on you in your strength that you provide. Help us, we pray in this, we ask. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen.